Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Here at The Next Reel, we've been passionately discussing movies week after week since 2011. That's a lot of movies and a lot of conversation. Sure is, Pete. And to be honest, it's a lot of work, too. But it's work that we love. If you've been enjoying our show, we'd like to remind you that there are ways to support us, even if you're not able to become a member just yet. You might have heard us talk about our new watch page, where we've listed every movie that we've talked about paired with Amazon or Apple links to rent or buy the movie. Now we'd like to introduce you to our Originals page. Let's take a trip down memory lane, Andy. Do you remember what the first film we discussed on The Next Reel was that was an adaptation? Uh, well, let's see. It wasn't, obviously, our Indiana Jones series, because those were all original. Uh, then we did Charlie Kaufman. Uh, oh, of course, it was Adaptation uh, from Susan Orlean's Orchid Thief. Exactly. We have covered quite a few adaptations over the years, and now we're providing a way for our listeners to delve into the original source material. That's right. Just head over to thenextreel.com slash originals, and you can see the list of all the adaptations that we have discussed. From our David Fincher series, featuring The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, and Fight Club. To our Paranoia trilogy with The Parallax View and All the President's Men. We have covered a variety of adaptations. Those were some great discussions, especially Fight Club. And let's not forget our baseball series with The Natural and Field of Dreams, adapted from Shoeless Joe. And Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking. So many memorable conversations. Absolutely. And you know what's exciting? Each purchase you make through our links doesn't cost you any extra, but a percentage goes to support the next reel in our family of shows. You can support us while diving deeper into these fantastic stories, whether it's the paper, audiobook, or Kindle version. We've also included plays and movies. If they were the source, we've put it on there. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals, support the next reel, and get your next great read today. I'm off to reread Fight Club. Now, where did I put my Kindle? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I really have to focus now. <laughs> you do, because it's going to, because it's like this is a test. It's I know. Like you're I feel being like tested. I have to, I, I, I know. I feel like I'm walking into, you know, an English class in high school and about to take a big uh, a big test that I'm not ready for. You said last week that you took uh your daughter to Star Wars. I did. And she fell she week. fell asleep. Mhm. I took my daughter to Star Wars today. Oh, okay. And I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime immediately after the pod races. Well, those uh, will put anybody to sleep, I, so that's understandable. I fell asleep, and I woke up when my daughter is, like, elbowing me, saying, Dad, I have a bloody nose, and she oh has my. blood, like, pouring out of her face. Oh, my goodness. So we ran out, and we got tissue, and we cleaned it up, and she's she's holding her nose, and she says, let's go back in. And she, and we watched, uh, we picked up um, at the, the Carmina Barana scene. Uh, and and that i was was quite good but i wanted to share just a few thoughts on because you shared a lot last week i just have a few additions to it okay the the best 3d the most rewarding part of the 3d the reason to make this 3d and the reason it worked for me was the opening title crawl (laughs) <laughs> which is sad and yet it was exactly what i imagined it should look like floating in space and then from that point forward the 3d was totally useless did you get the, that i mean it was well n- i didn't think it was useless like like during the um the battle scene at the end when you know all the ships were flying around in space that it just added a nice depth to it you know it's a nice yet nay nearly imperceptible depth like that movie was so clean and so perfect when it was released right mm-hmm. it it looks so crisp and perfect on right. my on my television it looks crisp and perfect and i go to see it on the big screen my expectation is that it will be crisp and perfect especially because i just talked about last week i talked about how i saw ghost rider which was some of the most impeccable 3d that i have seen mm-hmm. uh and this one was fuzzy and uh distractingly um artifact heavy uh and downright out of focus in some sequences and i found myself really aggravated by that i was frustrated the whole time i was like why did i give this dude more of my money i'm really getting myself i'm and and i do it willingly it's like please stop make me stop punching myself in the neck (laughs) uh i got i was getting really fired up yeah it's it's all the um just going back to old films and and converting it because I've had the same experience on everything I've seen that's been a you know an older film that's been converted to 3D like uh, 
the Lion King and this, it just, everything seems dark and it just, it, you know, it doesn't seem to lend itself well because, to it. Because check me on this. When you film something in 3D and convert to standard or to 2D, right, you, you're able to maintain this, the, the crispness of the sort of, uh, and, and the full range of color and the full range of sort of brightness and saturation. Right. Well, because because all you're doing when you're filming in 3D you're is you're filming, filming two with two cameras. cameras. So yeah, when you drop it to 2D, you just only show one camera's perspective. Right. And and so the the conversion. Do you know what the actual like? Could you walk through in short strokes like what the conversion from 2D to 3D of an old movie? What do they do? I I know nothing about it. What does the process look like? Well, my understanding, which you know, I which is I'm a, sure awesome. Seriously. <laughs> I'm not an expert, so this is just my basic understanding. But essentially, they take a photograph. Uh, you know, essentially, a frame of a film is like a photograph, right? So I've heard. I've heard this. Right, exactly. Right. And there's just, you know, 24 Many of these of every these, second, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. So you take that, and it's, it's what um, it's rotoscoping, essentially, is what they do. So say you have, you know, you know, three characters, a building, and then in the distance you have, you know, a fire or something. And the three characters are spread at different spaces across the foreground. So what they do is they they basically cut them out. And that's, I mean, really what they do is they, they cut them out. And you just create a, like multiple layers of film now. Yeah, it's, it's essentially kind of like the old school Disney... Um, like what they did in their animation with the, the multiplane cameras. And now what you do is you have a frame of your film, but like one character is on the upper level. The next character is, is a little bit farther behind that one. The third character is farther behind that. Then you have the frame of the house and then far distant, you have the, the fire, right? Right. Whatever is burning in the back. And so you, you now, you know, guess as to how far all of these are from the camera so that you're able to say, okay, that burning bush in the back is, uh, you know, uh, 500 yards away. This, the frame of the house is, is, uh, 20 yards away. And then, you know, this person is 12 yards, this person is six yards and this person is four yards away. And, that, so they use all, I don't know, some sort of mathematical thing, I'm sure, to kind of just create, okay, so if this person is four yards away, we're going to have to put the duplicate image in the other camera's eye this far, you know, move him over to this bit. And so it's just kind of a process of cutting people out and moving them around so that frame you, by frame by frame by frame. Exactly. So it's it's a long and, and awful process, I'm sure. And then obviously, if a film was done with a lot of CG, like Star Wars, they can rebuild a lot of effects. Well, or they can take, yeah, they can take the ex effects that they created and they can just essentially re, you know, process the entire thing of the effects through a different lens, which would be the 3D lens. Right, right. So in a sense, anything that's CG has the... Um, ability to become much more um, three-dimensional than the kind of cutout after uh, thought mm -hmm. that uh, they do. Right. And you could see that in, uh, you know, for example, Darth Maul's uh, Sentinel droids, 
right? Yeah. He sends the three droids out into the community, and you can see when they come into frame, it it feels like they come out and are floating out over the audience of the of the the sort of the lower part of the theater, and that feels that that feels uh, appropriate. That's like yeah. rich three D, and those moments happened so few and far between in this film for me. Like I expected to be blown out of my seat during the pod racing scene yeah. i expected to be blown out of my seat as those as during the the final lightsaber battle um and i i just didn't get it i it felt like i was you know just throwing good money after bad i was very frustrated by it i am sorry to hear that uh on that note however uh my daughter is really stoked to see wrath of the titans kind of wish that wasn't uh something she was excited about but it, well and it's speaking... a big film and speaking of the films that were, um, you know, converted after the fact, yeah, that the first one, Clash of the Titans, was shot 2D, but then, you know, like many modern 3D films, it was was you know as an afterthought, up converted to 3D to make some extra cash. Yeah, yeah. And it was done really poorly, and that's a perfect example. Like when I saw that, I could see, like, you know, oh. Perseus is on this level of the film and right. you know it's just, it's just like it just felt like a bunch of cut out it felt like um what are those called those little um viewfinders that kids look through you know huh yeah just yeah 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 the viewmaster viewmaster thank yeah, you yeah yeah that's what it feels like that's exactly what it feels like but I, on that same note i'm actually looking forward to wrath of the titans it looks like one of those great big movies that's going to be a great sort of exemplar for for you know cool effects like like Ghost Rider was. I mean, it was gorgeous. Yeah. Even I'll even be... if you don't like Nick Cage, I mean, I which I don't really, uh, but I quite I, I quite enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed the first Ghost Rider uh, more than I thought I would. I don't think I'd see it again, but I still no. enjoyed it more than I thought I would. And right. it's got a great great score by Christopher Young. So yeah, that's true. That's very true. You should did... definitely see this because these because this the the second one, Spirit of Vengeance, is. It's a great action movie. Have you know? It's really, it's awesome. <laughs> he plays it. He plays the actual, uh, the actual Ghost Rider very differently than in the first one. Like it's really twitchy and sort of schizophrenic. And and uh, like I was fascinated by just how the actual sort of skeletal hero moves. Uh, and it, oh. it was it was really it was great. I, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, so Andy, did you see anything else uh, this week that's worth talking about? Um, yeah, I saw, um, I saw Margin Call. Oh, what'd you think? I loved it. I was just totally engrossed by it. I thought it was a fantastic film. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely think it was worth the, um, the Oscar nomination for best original screenplay. And Kevin Spacey, it was so refreshing to see him in a film where he wasn't just like, He's kind of almost become a cliche of himself as always just kind of like this, you know, uh, just douchebag, you know, guy who's just right. you know, rude to everybody and crass and just, you know, always coming out with these, you know, smarmy comments and stuff. And it was such a refreshing opportunity to see him playing kind of a reserved character who um, is still like in the middle of this huge yeah, it, it's basically all takes place over about 28 hours or so um, of the company that essentially started 
the firewall sale of the all the mortgages back in uh, 2007 right right it's it's like the first 24 hours like the yeah it's right and has some really terrific performers performances from some really terrific actors who i never really expected seeing together right paul bettany uh with jeremy irons with zachary quinto i mean to me (laughs) more to me more i I have a major crush on ashley williams uh and uh, and please asif manvi yeah uh is i mean i see that guy every night in uh, on the daily show well not every night but he's great yeah it was it was uh for a first film uh by jc chandor i i was just blown away i was really really pleasantly surprised by it that's great uh, i'm glad you saw that movie what was that uh, that's all you caught this week oh gosh i feel like i've seen something else um but i'm just blanking right now mm-hmm. i started watching the conversation again i haven't uh I, I passed out from a long day of skiing after uh, I started after that and just I made it about halfway through. Where do you, where do you go skiing in Phoenix? <laughs> you just drive up into the mountains. They're they only don't, a couple hours there away. There are no mountains there. Where do you go from mountains? Where do you think the Grand Canyon is? It's up in the north country. Grand Canyon's a hole in the earth. <laughs> You're just making stuff up now. <laughs> just making it up. Uh, no, Flagstaff has a great, uh, a great ski hill, albeit very thin of snow this time of year. Wow, it was a, it was a little. Uh, it was still a good day, and it was my daughter's first time skiing, so it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's fun. That's yeah. nice. You could do that. Uh, all right. Well, I, I didn't. Besides uh, seven, I'm working my way through, uh, which I, I had not seen was the the Lincoln Lawyer, um, oh, okay. which. I, I think I expected more. I, I guess I'm tired of Matthew McConaughey being a lawyer. You know, I expected, I, I think I was expecting less from that film. Really? So I, walk, I walked out of it uh, enjoying it quite a bit. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I just wasn't really expecting much. I, I, I guess I don't, I've grown to a point where I don't expect much from Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey. So when yeah. I saw him in a film that was wasn't uh, that bad, I was like, okay, there you go. Have you heard anything, uh, any any word on whether or not they're going to? Uh, speaking of lawyer titles, uh, whether they're anybody has optioned the litigators. Uh, I have John Grisham's new book. I read that book this week, and it is uh, it was a good read. It's a pulpy kind of lawyer read, but it was it it was really good. There's a nice uh, there's a nice sort of dramatic twist to it um i like the characters he he pulled together for this uh for for this law firm that it's a it's an interesting twist of sort of watching the ambulance chasing um kind of law firm turn into something reputable and i really i felt good i felt sort of rewarded at the end of it and i don't usually feel that way about law stories kind of like denzel washington in philadelphia yeah (laughs) right uh man i haven't seen that in so long um, that's been a while anyway it, it was a good uh, it was a good read cool uh and um i am working now on uh oh my goodness it's it's an absolutely epic uh science fiction story i can't think of the the name of it um well, it'll come a, to me. A recent one? No, well, it's an, it's one it's one it's one of those that on I'm listening to it. I'm I've got it through uh, Audible and it's one of those it's like six parts that are 9 hours each, you know. I mean, it's this uh, uh, unbelievable epic and there are five books of that 
length and girth in the <laughs> in, in the series and so i'm just trying to get through it and and uh but it's it's quite good I, i'll think of it it'll come to me anyway we excellent, should talk about excellent. this movie uh well before we do oh, do you okay. want to do your usual thing i do i have a usual thing um and do your usual thing and then i we have two new five-star reviews on itunes so i'll read those after you're done oh i love that i know isn't it great it's really great um uh, so uh i wasn't actually ready but I'm now I'm ready. Well, well, okay. No, no, no I'm ready now. Uh, okay. but the the usual thing is this: make sure if you are uh, if you're catching this on the website, we love that you have stopped by the website. You can listen to the show on the website anytime you want. That's very handy. Uh, you can also hear our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. It allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, iPad, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and more on demand and on the go. You can download Stitcher for free at Stitcher.com or find it in the appropriate app stores for your chosen mobile ecosystem stitcher smart radio it's the smarter way to listen to radio uh you can also find us in the itunes podcast directory and and when i'm looking at our uh our data where people come from i look at at where people are coming from uh, to listen to the show by far people are still hitting us from uh from itunes um i wanted to share with you before we do that what countries people are listening to the show uh, in, Ooh. and I am so, I, I would like to welcome each and every one of our international listeners. Uh, we have a very small, uh, a small population of listeners in the Russian Federation, oh, uh, Romania, Croatia, France. We start getting a little bit more uh, interest in France and the European Union and Spain and Denmark and Germany and Japan. Now, Argentina and Chile, it starts picking up. Ukraine, the Maldives, the Philippines. We now have more of a significant audience in the Philippines and the Netherlands. Greetings to all of our Netherlands listeners. Uh, Vietnam, the United Kingdom, and second to the United States, Mexico. Uh, wow. Buenos dias. Uh, how do you say a welcome to our podcast in Spanish? Uh, bienvenidos a uh, nos uh, podcast, I guess. That was that, that <laughs> if was. I recall any Spanish for my Spanish speaking <laughs> days. That was good. That was good. You sounded very. Uh, you sounded just like a foreigner speaking Spanish in a restaurant, authentically. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, all of our U.S. listeners, thank you so much for for uh, joining the show and listening to us, and um, and for passing on uh, word of the show to your movie loving friends. We appreciate uh, we appreciate your help. Yes, we do. And what what do people have to say in our uh, in iTunes? Well, we have uh, Amy uh, spelled very cleverly E I G H M M I E. Amy, nice. Said, Deep and insightful film banter. I have enjoyed the musings of Pete Wright on a number of different topics, but truly enjoy the Movies We Like podcast. The discussion always takes me back to the moments of the films, which really caught my attention and made the lasting impressions. Wright and Nelson share new-to-me discoveries on the makings and behind the scenes, and also give me some morsels of goodness on perhaps why those film moments connected. That's really nice. Yeah. Oh, and then she says, highly recommend. Oh, yeah, that is really nice, Amy. E e Amy. <laughs> that's really nice. I I uh, yeah, that's very kind of her to say. Who else do we have? Who else has has written in? You, you reminded me either of of Nell or Forrest Gump when you said that. <laughs> Amy. 
Uh, and then Mike Evans, uh, good old Mike here in uh, Surprise, said, it feels like I am in the room with them. That might I... not be a great compliment. <laughs> it feels like I can't get out of a room that I am stuck. I'm flying at the walls, but they won't let me leave. Oh. Uh, he says, I enjoy this podcast a lot. Even if they are talking about a movie I have seen a bunch of times and think I know everything about it, they seem to find things that I hadn't thought about. It makes me want to watch the movie again to see what I missed. For the older movies, it's like rediscovering the movie all over again. And for the newer ones, I find myself seeing films I may have not been inclined to. It's a benefit to see the movies before you listen to the podcast. If you do, you will get more out of it and feel like you are talking with the guys. Man, that's so cool. What great. Amy and Mike, thank you so much for saying that. I know, uh, actually, uh, both of uh, Amy and Mike have also uh, commented along with us on Facebook uh, posts, and uh, uh, it's just always, it's just very gratifying to hear that they're listening along. So a big shout out to Amy and Mike uh, for for keeping up with us. Yes, thank you. Uh, And... um, I think Mike was the one who actually wasn't he the one who started pointing out the movies that he really <laughs> didn't he skipped the podcast because he really hated the movies. I hope he turned around. <laughs> I think that was Alex. Actually. Oh, okay, good. All right, yeah. all right. Yes, I believe he uh, said. I can't remember which movie it was. Well, Benjamin Button, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that one. That was a a subject of hot protest. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, as I like to call it. Sesevenen. <laughs> Sesevenen. Sesevenen. Can we talk about this movie? Are Let's you ready? About it. I am ready to talk about Seven now that we've been going God. on for about a half hour now. This movie totally holds up. It more than holds up. This I movie uh. is, is uh, I think, should be one of the uh, perennial classics. Absolutely. Hands down. I, I don't know... Uh, I don't really know how to talk about this movie in any context other than awesome. It is, uh, and okay. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down. I got to slow down. I got to slow <laughs> down. I feel so like I'm eating too fast. It's like I'm running out of oxygen in the, in the office here. So you, we have now watched all of the Fincher films Except- with the exception of Alien 3. Correct. We've watched them in reverse. Mm-hmm. What is your perception of this movie in the context of all the other now later movies in our Benjamin Button style Fincher quest? Uh, it, how does this movie compare now that you've seen all these other movies that have stacked up after it? You know, it's it, I, I was wondering if we should talk about that beforehand or after. And I think we may as well talk about it now. Um well, I've you know, totally screwed it up. Then. No, no, no. I've I think it's it great. It's, All right. good, it's good to bring it up. I, I think it's um, watching it in reverse was very interesting to kind of deconstruct, you know, Fincher's career and see where he started with things and working with certain people and choices that he made and everything. And coming back to Seven, I have really found that he's a filmmaker who who's certainly kind of, you know, grown in the types of stories that he tells, but for all intents and purposes, I mean, coming out of the gate, he was already making amazing films. And so it's not like watching a filmmaker grow from kind of a low end, you know, a, a B rated movie 
up to, you know, something stellar. I mean, he's been making stellar films from the beginning. This film, as soon as it was over again, I told my wife, I said, you know, this might, I might consider this a perfect film. I mean, it's, it's so good. I, there's a few little problems I have with it, but. It's, I really am looking forward to hearing what those problems are. I think it, for me, there is one problem with it, and that is it's not approachable enough to a broader audience. Well, I think that is a, I mean, I guess that is a problem, but you know, if you, if you are a filmmaker and you're acknowledging your audience and you make a film with your audience in mind, knowing that this is a film that the audience I'm making it for will really connect to it. There are definitely going to be audiences that aren't going to like it. I know people who won't watch it because of the gore um, and because it's just so dark and gloomy, but you know, everyone else who I know who is fine watching that in a film thinks it's a fantastic film. Well, true. And I, you know, I say that really more personally because I find myself watching it. Kira would not watch it with me. Um, and I, I, she swears up and down that I had forced her to watch it some time ago. And, and I don't remember that, but the, the, the point is I, it is such a, a well-architected film and the performances from, uh, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt so early in his career, um, are, are so pitch perfect in this film that, that, um, I want more people to see it. I want to share it with more people. And, uh, and I don't find that it, you know, I find that there's such a, a audience of folks that are, that are put off by the gore, um, that, that, you know, that that's, that's disappointing to me. I want to share, I want to share what really fine film work is, is modern auteur, uh, work is, is really all about. Yeah. Uh, you you had been sharing some points in our in our in the Google Doc that I thought were pretty strong. Uh, in particular, as long as we're talking about early in David Fincher's career, can you share what you found out about about Morgan Freeman's first um, perception of working with Fincher? Yeah, you know it was interesting. I was listening to the the commentary on the film on the uh, the the uh, the DVD. Um, it was I know they had different commentary when. The Criterion Collection released Laserdisc, which I actually have, although I did not have time to go through all of those commentaries. That would have been a lot right. of commentaries to go through. Um, but yeah, Morgan Freeman um, was talking about uh, David Fincher and you know just kind of what it was like working with him. So let me just read this blurb. Um, let's see if I want to read the whole thing. Da, da, da. I, well, I'll just read the whole thing. I, I'd highlighted a portion, but I didn't read the whole thing. When I first met David Fincher, I was struck by his personality, his person. He's warm. He's got this great smile. And then you talk to him and his intelligence is almost intimidating. And he's explaining to me how he wants to shoot this. Nothing about character and all that stuff. That was just my area. But the technical aspects of this movie and how he wanted to approach it, I found it very intriguing. And I was looking forward to working with this guy. So I found myself immediately able to put myself in his hands because he's already told me about what he wants to do, the effect he wants to make, etc., etc. I now know this. So if he says he needs me to make an adjustment for the light, I won't cuss out the director of photography for making me play to the lights. My whole experience with David throughout the filming was one of almost symbiosis. I really took to him and admired him. I find that passage so... Like, I, I think the most important... Um, sort of frame for me around that is that this was a guy on his second major motion picture production. 
after a really bad experience. After a bad experience, exactly. At this movie, I think hearing a comment like that from an actor with such a, a CV as Morgan Freeman, uh, it, you're just as likely to have seen that sort of a reaction to working with Fincher as, uh, you know, after Benjamin Button or after Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Like that's that's the kind of, of um, you know, really expertise that he sort of just brings uh, instinctively to working with actors, don't you think? Yeah, oh, yeah, I, I completely agree. He really knows how to communicate with the actors, knows how to communicate with all of the technical people he's working with, and he's also able to, like, work with each of them so that they understand the other side. So that the actors, like he said here, you know, he, he is he, Morgan Freeman knew exactly what Fincher was trying to do technically, so that he knew, you know, the look that he that Fincher was going for with the film. So on the technical side, Morgan Freeman didn't mind moving his body, adjusting it for the light. Um, whereas if if that hadn't been explained to him, like he said, he would have just you know cussed out the director of photography. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting when when you start um, getting to that place as a director and you're able to kind of make everybody work together so well. And like we just said, this is at the beginning of his career. Okay, let's walk through uh, uh, let's walk through the 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 film uh, a a little bit. the film, the script by Andrew Kevin Walker. How did the script? Uh, how did the script come to Fincher? He was not originally slated to direct this one. No, this film. Um, I didn't really uh, realize this until I was listening to these commentaries, but it was uh, it was around for a little while. I think um, Andrew Kevin Walker wrote it uh, late eighties, early nineties. I want to say while he was living in New York, he was really depressed about you know his attempts at um becoming a screenwriter and everything and new york just had this oppressive feeling on him that basically led him to write this story Um, (laughs) yeah i can i can feel that that's right that's a real you ought to send that to the mayor afterward this is i (laughs) I spent some time in your city and just wanted to share with you the results (laughs) (laughs) well and it's funny because they never actually tell you what city you know, the film takes place in, it definitely has that New York vibe, but it's never called out as New York. And it was actually shot in LA, which is very interesting considering how oppressive and rainy and dark and dirty the whole thing looks. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. But he, um, so Andrew Kevin Walker, it, it started making its way around Hollywood and, um, a director, Jeremiah Chechik, was attached to direct it. He um, is not a director who's done a whole lot. I think um, you know his big credits would be uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Benny and June. Uh, so it's odd that he was chosen. I think his his American remake of the French film Diabolique is probably what uh, got his name on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the time, the studios, and I don't know how much a role Jeremiah was playing in this or if it was just the studios, they really had Andrew turn it away from the kind of the gritty film that it is as we know it. Um, they had him trying to turn it into more of a kind of a 
a detective, you know, chase film type of story where at the end you've got this great big, uh, you know, this big chase scene where Somerset and Mills are, are um, you know, on the, on the trail of John Doe. And um, as I, you know, as I was reading here, you know, they, they uh, chase John Doe down into a, a, a manhole and through the sewers and up into this building that he sets on fire or something. And, you know, it, it just turned into a very cliche sort of, you know, Hollywood um, cop action movie. Um, luckily that film did not get made. Um, something happened. I'm not quite sure what, but, um, David Fincher, he, um, was sent the script and looked at it and he loved it. He thought it was just, just a brilliant, brilliant script. And he, like everything about it from the beginning all the way through the head of the box at the end, he called his agent and was like, I have to make this. This is great. And this was, you know, after alien three, um, you know, it was reported that he didn't read a script for a year and a half saying, um, I thought I'd rather die of colon cancer than do another movie. So huh. he, I know he was really apparently turned off and was just happy, uh, at that point in his life doing nothing but commercials again. But his agent sent him this script. He read it. It was just like thrilled at the chance to do something that really was, would stand out. And he called his agent and said, I want to make this. God, I can't believe, you know, we could make this movie with his head in the box. And his manager or his agent was like, whoa, 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 head in the box. Oh, no, I sent you the wrong draft of the script. Here, let me send you the, <laughs> let me, let, let me send you the, the most recent draft. And he sent him the script. And it was the one that had like the, the stereotypical cop chase at the end and everything. And he's just like, what? No, this is not the film that I want to make. And so he told his agent that he would only do it if it was the original first script or his first draft of the script that had the head in the box and the whole well, you know, I, very and heavy the, ending. The way I understand it also, it was it was uh, uh, Brad Pitt had a role in that, saying he refused to make the film if the ending were changed. Well, that was after... Or was that later? That was after Fincher came on because then once Fincher was on and they were trying to make it, the studio was really, really pushing to change the ending. The whole idea of having a head in the box at the ending was just not something that they wanted to make. And so they wanted to change the ending um, to remove the head in the box or like they wanted to put a dog's head in, I think, at one point, um, like it was one of his dog's heads in the box. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, not as good. Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, that's the point where they were just like, uh, uh-uh, no way. It's not going to carry the weight. And to the point where Arnold Copelson, uh, one of the producers on the film, um, had to sit down with with Fincher and uh, Fincher convinced him. He said, you know, look, in 50 years, we want this to be a film that people are still going to be talking about. We want people to be, you know, this is what we can do. We'll keep the head in the box. This is going to be in 50 years. People will be still talking about it. They'll say, oh, was that movie with the head in the box at the ending? That's that is going to be the the moment in the film that people will still remember and why it will be a film that is remembered. And he's right; it's true. And there it's are funny. so many of those moments in this movie. Yeah, Almost yeah. every one of the sins is one that you could that you remember. 
but it's it's that twist at the end yeah. that and it's not just the head in the box but it's really what that head in the box represents and how it ends up tying all of that those pieces those final two sins wrath and envy right. how it ties all of that together and it's it's so powerful it really just it is it is powerful uh oh my goodness it's powerful on so many visually it's extremely powerful that uh, now check me on this. I don't think they actually show the head in the box. No, no, they that, don't. That's that's a very sort of wonderful Hitchcockian kind of a twist, given the amount of gore that they show in this movie. Uh, the amount of just sort of darkness and just a really disgusting setup for all of these different, uh, all of the different, the way all the different sins play out. To then not show the head in the box is. Uh, uh, it it's really rewarding. Like you 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 end up really feel almost expecting it, and you're uh, uh, it, it's like a kick in the gut when you don't see it. Well, and then you find out what it is. Right. You, you find out, and it's but you almost couldn't show it because you want it to be a surprise. You want the audience to be right. thinking about what it is, so that when when Somerset runs back and and um, John Doe tells Mills. You know, yeah. at that moment, it's just like, whoa. John Doe tells Mills. How, what did, give, what's your perception of how he tells Mills? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it works for me. It's, it's a very – it's the final, um, the final piece, the final card that he has that he plays and shows that, that this whole time he has um, – been winning and he knew it yeah you know he had all the cards all the time they were trying to beat him but they were never ahead of him they never had any idea how these last two deaths wrath and envy uh, or last two victims i guess i should say were going to come together yeah that he was going to be one of the victims yeah it's um it's really, really a powerful way to play that ending. It was, it was absolutely, uh, it was an absolutely wonderful twist. Um, the uh, let's see, what else stands out? We I had told you last week that I wanted, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the the way, uh, the the technology of the film. Um, obviously, this was long before digital. Yeah, they still shot it on film. And and Fincher, you know, he had been really tired of films that took place in the dark that didn't look dark, where the, you know, a black night didn't look black, but kind of looked like a muddy gray. Mm -hmm. um, what happens when, when uh, film companies make, well, when distributors um, used to make film prints, they would make, you know, put them on real thin film on real thin emulsion and so anything that was dark just had kind of this grayish look so what he did in this film is he did a, a process um, called a bleach bypass process where essentially after it runs through the um, I'm going to try to get this right the film runs through the bath where it gets processed and what happens is the silver uh, gets stripped off of the 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 negative and but when that what they do then is they run it back through so the silver um, essentially kind of reattaches itself to the emulsion in the dark spots 
Um, and I don't quite understand the chemical uh, reason for all of that, but somehow it ends up coming out where everything that's dark has a much deeper, darker look to it. And so it creates these really dark, contrasty films um, that are really um, just real moody. It just has a real moody look. And um, and Can that's you... essentially how they shot it. And it they only did this with, uh, I don't know, a certain number, like 2,500 of the initial film prints that went out after that. The rest of them weren't done that way. Um, I think in the initial run, I saw in the initial like opening night, and so I'm pretty sure I saw it in the silver nitrate version and uh, feeling like it was just this very dark black film. Mm-hmm. Can you think of other films that have used the same process? Um, I was looking at that and... I, you know, the game had, they used a, a similar process, but I don't think it was quite the same process. Uh, let's see. Um, it was first used actually in 1960 by a film, a uh, Japanese filmmaker, Konichikawa, called Her Brother. Uh, that was the first time Bleach Bypass was used. It was actually, uh, oh, no, not that one. Um, it was used in, uh, actually in Roger Deakins film, 1984. That's pretty interesting. Huh? I did not know that. Um, and, uh, in saving private Ryan, actually, there's, there's a big recent one that was done. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so the, the film, the, the it really does look darker. And I think the, uh, I think what the, what I had read, the criterion collection, um, the the most recent Criterion Collection, they actually went back to one of those Bleach Bypass twenty five hundred, uh, and so you can get the you can get that look on the special edition DVD. Well, which is actually an interesting thing about doing that process is you essentially every time you make a new version of it, like when Criterion did their version, and then when the studio did the version for the DVD. You can't just um, take, you know, a, another version. You essentially have to go through the process all over again. And so the DVD uh, and Blu-ray that subsequently have come out in the last, you know, 12 years or so um, are actually going to have a potentially slightly different look than the Criterion uh, Laserdisc version that came out um, in the 90s. So oh. it's, you know, it's kind of a interesting thing. I, I think it would be interesting to look side by side at the different versions right, and, and see, see, yeah, how, how much it's actually changed. Uh, okay. So let's talk about the, our lead characters. Uh, originally, uh, it sounds like, let's see, there were a couple of interesting, ca- uh, casting choices. Uh, or casting, I think, would have been interesting casting choices. You know, hindsight is always <laughs> what it is. But uh, apparently, the part of Brad Pitt was once considered by uh, considered for Denzel Washington, who turned it down. Yeah. Well, that would have been a whole different movie. Yeah, it would have been. I, I could almost see Denzel Washington, not to put him down in any way, but I could almost have seen him in the more you know, cop chase oriented version. Totally, totally very different. But I think one of the things that Brad Pitt brings to it and I, let's see, uh, where where is this? I I need to go back and get the year for 12 monkeys. When did 12 monkeys come out? Uh, it was the same year. This Brad Pitt actually, 
was not available for some reshoots um, at the end because he was actually off shooting 12 Monkeys. So these came out uh, right on the uh, right on the heels of one another. Yep. yep. It, it's that it's uh, he brings that it, there's a very strange sort of twitchiness that uh, I, I think he um, that, that sort of carries across between the two films. You know, you can feel their proximity. They sort of bookend one another. Like the the character in 12 Monkeys is what happens after, uh, you know, the character goes through what he goes through in Seven, you know. Uh, well, that's that's an interesting uh, twist that I hadn't really thought of, but it's kind of funny. Yeah. Don't you see it? I mean, it just feels like he's bringing that to it. There's a thing that he does in this movie that he's just constantly scratching the back of his head. Yeah. And I found myself wanting to itch something back there for him. Uh, it, it is just such a perfect sort of frustration. He's like a caged animal. He like brings exactly what I expect of this new, uh, you know, how he, he considers himself as a seasoned police detective having spent, you know, five years uh, doing this sort of detective work. Uh, and yet he is still the newbie sort of beat detective compared right. to Morgan Freeman's uh, 38-year uh, uh, veteran. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a... F it, they... I, I mean, I... It, you think back to the sort of the, the buddy movies, right? That are... that are the, the buddy movies that are fun to watch, the character development. Yeah. Right? And this one stands out to me uh, because of the sophistication of these two actors and the way they bring their relationship together through the course of these horrific events. You you see that, you know, hey, it's nice to meet you. Get the hell out of my office. I'm the new guy. I'm here to take over. Uh, turn to turn into, you know, these guys who who really have a deep affection for one another. And by the end of the movie, uh, there's that there's that great Morgan Freeman, you know, as he's talking with the 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 chief saying, you know, whatever he needs. Mm -hmm. Give him whatever he needs. And it's just right. a it's a wonderful turn and there's a point about uh, i guess about 40 minutes into the movie there the two of them are talking to the chief in the office and they're trying to come together on these on these uh, uh you know on these killings and they they get the call that uh, uh i guess it's the police commissioner i can't remember is the police commissioner who is it who's giving the statement and they they stand together and say you know this doesn't feel right this isn't our guy uh and and you really realize that they are they are as one in this film finally and that that conversion that transformation of these two characters from being you know sort of artful opposites to a singular crime fighting entity is uh, is really great yeah yeah it is and it, even to the point where at the end or toward the end as they're getting ready to go with John Doe out to find these last two bodies. You know, you've got that very intimate scene where mm -hmm. they're like shaving their chests together while they prepare to be taped up for the uh, wireless or for the, the microphones to right. be taped to their chests and everything. You know, it's, it is very, it does create this very intimate moment between the two guys where they really have grown together. Even it's, even though it's only over the course of a week, it does develop into a much more, uh, 
uh, interesting relationship as as it goes. Well, and and I think you you know that's a really good point. The the sort of space and time element, which is to say that uh, you know one of the things that horrific events does to that that the act of experiencing a horrific event does to you know to teams is bring them together, and um, you know and these two guys are certainly examples of that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Another interesting uh, thing that I think works really well in this film is um, in in relation to Brad Pitt is his relationship with Gwyneth Paltrow as his wife, Tracy. Um, And I think the fact that this was actually made at the time, um, if people remember back when Brad and Gwyneth were actually a couple. And I think that the affection that they have for each other in this film is a great reflection of the actual real life affection that they had for each other. And it comes across. I think it really comes across in the film, even though her on-screen time is uh, very, very short. Very short. But those moments are, uh, she is a, a, a significant catalyst in the, in the film. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it, there is a, there's a scene where she calls um, Somerset. Right. Uh, and to, to have coffee where she confides in him saying, you know, she, that she is pregnant. And uh, he is so beautifully clumsy uh, in his ability to talk to to women, and yet he does so really quite well. Uh, and and you see her really break down, and yet she has been such a symbol of strength uh, in her relationship with Brad Pitt's character in bringing those two men together to invite him over to dinner and to to really cut through all the awkwardness that these guys were dealing with. Well, and to really introduce them to each other as, you know, David and William. Yeah, exactly. Up to that point, they didn't even know each other's first names. Exactly. Yeah, great Uh, moment. It it was a great moment. It was a great moment. Um, One of the things I find really, I found interesting in this movie, and as long as we're, you you know, we look at the thread of of, um, sort of elements um, in the films of Fincher, is this idea of how he handles uh, research, on-screen research. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of on-screen research in his films. And this movie uh, is no different. And I, yeah, well, at least I don't remember dealing with on-screen research in Alien 3. Um, <laughs> but but this one, there is a lot of it there. Uh, did you get any sense for, uh, or do you have any sort of reflection on how this movie handles the use of sort of on-screen printed and photographic material compared to these other movies. Well, it's you're you're right. I mean, he really he does do that. And I you know, I guess by nature it's a detective story. So they are going to detect. They are going to use their skills to do that. Um, you know, just uh, just like, you know, Daniel Craig's character does in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. He is a, you know, investigative journalist. He's investigating. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way he does it is very fascinating. And a lot of it stems from the story itself. You know, you have this serial killer who, for all intents and purposes, has really done his research and is a very, very smart cookie. You know, he he has read all these books, you know, which is obviously how they track him down in the film. They uh, He's read all these books. He's read, you know, um, 
the um, Dante's Inferno. He's, you know, read uh, the Marquis de Sade or the Marquis de Chardet as <laughs> Marquis Brad de Prince Chardet so brilliant, exactly. brilliantly <laughs> eloquates. But it's it's very um, he's somebody who's who's um, who has done his homework and Somerset likewise is somebody who knows how to uh, how to research and I think for me the scene in the library always stands out as a fantastic moment where you really get to see a very smart man use the tools that are handy to him to um, kind of dig deeper into what this serial killer is trying to say and is doing and the way that it's shot the way that scene is is done with that um uh bach piece playing in the background which so, it, it correct me if i'm wrong but i think that's the same uh the same piece that is uh playing when uh james bond wakes up in the undersea lair of uh one of my a spy who loved me is it <laughs> i think it's the same piece i'm gonna have to research that but it's one of my favorite scenes when he yeah. says oh mr bond here are my sharks <laughs> okay go ahead you were saying that was just a genius comparison <laughs> i loved it <laughs> well i let me just interject because one of the reasons that i like this so much is that and i think is a, a really artful way to inject uh sort of interactivity into the scene uh, there is a sequence where somerset is you know he's doing all this research you know he's doing it off time uh right he's not because he's not really on the case he's let yeah he's off the case at yeah this point, right? he's doing but he is we see these pictures of all this classic you know the the classic uh, sort of renaissance uh uh cuttings mm -hmm. uh, of the seven deadly sins and he's making notes to Mills saying, you may want to check out such and such and the catechism and such and such and the seven sins and seven deadly sins, etc. He's making notes and it, it cuts back to Mills doing his own investigation, which is uh, essentially uh, uh, an update of the seven deadly sins printings uh, that Somerset was looking at. It's, it's the actual photographs of John Doe's work uh, right. and, and having those, having it cut between the two characters doing their own research uh, interjects a real sort of momentum to the, to the scene, to the sequence uh, that makes it, uh, you know, it makes it not sort of get bogged down uh, in just information vomit. Right. Uh, I interrupted yeah. you with my James Bond thing a while ago. So now no, no, finish no, but, your point. But you're absolutely right. It's, that's exactly why it works so well is you have these intercuttings of these things. You, 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 you know, the way that it, it cuts to him looking through these books and photocopying the pages. And you see these, these wonderfully um, awful images of the, the, the layers of hell and, you know, um, all the different Renaissance paintings that mm -hmm. we look at and everything. And then the actual crime scene photos, which really have a, you know, kind of a quality of, you know, that, you know, fascinating horror uh, that you see in crime scene photos, you know, where, I don't know, they always end up black and white for some reason, but um, just the nature of the crimes just is, is so horrific. And then the way that it's depicted in black and white just seems so matter of fact, yet yet awful and mm -hmm. it, kind of the way that a lot of the the art was you know it's it, it has the same sort of quality so it is it's a really fascinating way to to get across the research as they look at it all 
I have in my notes something. I, I it's like a mea culpa. Uh, I uh, I brought up during when we were talking about uh, I guess it was Panic Room that I really loved. It was Panic Room and Fight Club that I really loved the way he did on screen titles. And I had brought up uh, it, when I brought it up, it was about credits. Um, and you you came back immediately said, "Are you kidding? The best credits in Fincher the, that Fincher does is from Seven. And so I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your impression of the credits uh, sequence, because it's another one of the sort of legendary Fincher credits. I feel like we should stack it and just do a show reviewing only credit sequences of of his films. Yeah, you easily could. It, well, it's really I mean, it's I, I very distinctly remember watching this film in the theater and those credits started and. I just was like already like knocked back in my seat, just going. I am in for an amazing experience here. What I, of, of I, note? I, the credits don't happen at the beginning of the movie. No, right? no, no. Right? Yeah, the very first thing you see is a is crime scene. Uh, yeah, you see a crime scene um, with Somerset while right. he's investigating a a, a domestic right. you know violence that turned into murder scene. Um, very quiet very uh you know laid back very interesting scene the way yeah. it plays yeah. and then it jumps into the credits so which 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 essentially are um the introduction to John Doe for the audience because we're essentially watching John Doe's creation of these fascinating and horrifying journals of his that are just full of scribbles of like the rantings of a madman in um, a lot of respects, along with really horrifying and unique photos and sketches. And but the way that it's it's cut together and it, the film is layered and you see just really unique editing styles going on through the whole thing. It just was real, real uh, unique experience to watch the opening credits for this film. And um, I know that um, I can't remember the the man who uh, did the opening credits, but um, but he definitely had some influence by Stan Brakhage, who is a, a very famous avant-garde filmmaker who um, I actually had a class with back in college. Mm -hmm. Very um, interesting filmmaker who really saw film as an art form where you're essentially painting with the camera. You're painting with each frame. And he took that to the point where he literally was painting on his frames and everything, um, scratching. He would scratch in the negatives. And, and he would just do all of this very um, unique, visceral um, work with his films that he made. And a lot of that influence came through in the uh, the opening credit sequence here. Just um, so are you saying? I mean, you bring up the scratching. the The titles were they actually scratched on the negative? They weren't. They weren't scratched Not here. On the okay, negative, but um, but they have that sense of having been scratched right. on the negative, and they got that from. Um, and I'm not going to remember the term, but um, usually when they're doing titles, they there's a specific kind of um, uh, camera or something that they use that that essentially. Um, pins the image down and essentially so when they're layering it with the titles on top of it um 
it will always be in the exact same spot. And Fincher was just like, well, why should we have to do that? And their reaction was, of course, well, because that's how we always do titles. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, no, 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 let's let's try it without. It just feels like the film where you aren't, you shouldn't do that. And so that kind of creates that real jittery, uh, shaky way that each title comes up, mm-hmm. which does really lend it to that feeling of having been scratched into the negative. The uh, what the the titles uh, are telling a sort of a sub story in uh, in seven. Uh, it is uh, we're watching John Doe uh, cut his uh, fingerprints off of his fingers, cutting the skin off of his fingers, and and uh, you know affixing them into these journals that he's written. Interestingly, about the journals, I this is a bit of trivia that just it it sort of blew me away uh, that in fact all of these the books that they discover in John Doe's apartment and the books that we see him sewing his skin into and writing in were all real uh, and, and written for the film, uh, taking two months, uh, 15 grand, uh, and, uh, uh, every one of these binders was full of the scribbles of sort of the quote, John Doe. Uh, yeah, which I thought amazing? was fascinating. So that story we're seeing and that that, you know, the tidbits of, you know, well, there's no there, there are no fingerprints in the crime scene. Keep looking. There are no fingerprints in his part is his apartment. Keep looking. In fact, there were no fingerprints anywhere because he can he kept cutting his fingerprints off of his hands. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but then to document them by sewing them into the journals, uh, yet another sort of slap in the face to the detectives that that he was always seven steps ahead of them so to Mm -hmm. speak yeah and like they say in the film john doe by choice yeah john doe by choice john doe and the seventh victim yeah uh, by choice uh uh, closing comments uh, andrew how do you how do you characterize it i feel like we need some sort of a um requiem well Uh, i i do you have candles lit uh, there, I, 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 I have been surrounded by candles, by candles and thing. herbs. Yes. yes, and I'm 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 sitting in my uh, uh, my meditative yoga pose. I'm about to eat my ceremonial turducken. <laughs> you know this this film um, was essentially, I guess, if discounting Alien Three, which I think in you know a large. Uh, extent was kind of a you know a not a good first step for david fincher this one really in a way may have started off david fincher as a filmmaker who can essentially get what they call director's cut um, where he gets to you know make the film that he wants to make and i think that his argument that he had with Arnold Copelson about keeping the head in the box really proves his intellect at being able to be a director who gets um, director's cut by being able to sell them on the reason why those sorts of things are important and why the film should be made that way. And from the beginning, you know, he's been able to to sell his team on his vision and keep the film going and and they may not have called it director's cut all the way through you know his early career i'm not sure at what point they actually said you know he's got final cut but uh, for all intents and purposes it really feels like this film was the start of that it it 
uh, it, it really does. And I think, uh, you know, back to the, uh, well, you know, I want to go back to your to another passage that you picked up and highlighted in in you know your notes, which is uh, do you have that open still? Can I you, do. Can I you do. share his? Uh, uh, there there were thoughts on his role versus actor's role, and and I think his perception of his role is um, really illustrates why he's a guy who who has earned the right to to dictate how his films ultimately play out. Can you share that? Yeah. So David Fincher talking about um, actors, he says, the actor's job is to be selfish of their character. They're the experts on who they are, on what they're trying to do. My job, my expertise is how it fits into the whole. And if you start to mutate what they're bringing to the table so that it only serves the narrative, then you're bereft of characterization. And characterization, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Life, that thing that makes the tapestry, it's the rough edges. It's the thing that makes an audience relate to it on a human level. It's a juggling act. I think that's such a fascinating uh, statement as we're talking about you know, him finding something defensible in the head in the box. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, in fact, it's the weight of the head in the box that as we as an audience uh, are relating to at a human level and the weight of a dog in the box just wouldn't have carried. No, it wouldn't have. It would have, uh, I mean, yeah, it would have been a very kind of flat ending. Yeah. There, oh, have, yeah, there is nothing it, flat about this movie. That is a, that's a great, uh, that's a great thing to say about it. There is absolutely nothing flat. Oh, I was going to tell you, you, you uh, asked, and uh, I'm going to have to tell you now about the, the moment that uh, I think is as perfect as a film as I think this is. There's, there's one thing that I'm just never quite, I'm never quite sure of, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's a really, really minor complaint, but it's been, one, been something that it's always like, uh, okay, I'm not, I'm not sold on it. It's the, it's the strange attitude the relationship that the the SWAT guys have with the detectives and uh, it only oh. comes, it only comes up twice in the film um all in the scene the sloth scene and um the first time is the two detectives are walking up as as you know the big you know let's go get the bad guy uh, cha- or the ride to the bad guy's house is happening which turns out to be a um a red herring as it's really just a chase to find another victim. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the two detectives are walking up the stairs, one of the SWAT guy runs by and says, Hey, SWATs before dicks. And he runs past them to go up and, you know, be ahead of them basically. And then, um, John C. McGinley, a fantastic actor, um, in a, in a, yeah, a fairly small role. Yeah, very small role in this film. <laughs> but, you know, as he's looking at Sloth, which at this point everybody thinks is a dead body, um, you know, they say something, and I, I should have written down what uh, the detectives say, but he kind of whispers back to them, you get what you deserve. You know, like this, there's this weird attitude between the these two departments within the police force. And then of course, sloth wakes up and everything. Right. As he's screaming dicks, dicks, dicks for the private or for the detectives. So, um, but it's, it's just, it's, it's a weird little 
you know, thing that, you know, it, it doesn't bother me that much. It's just a weird relationship thing that I don't think ever was developed that well. I guess, you know, by nature in a police force, different departments are going to have attitudes toward each other and stuff. And, uh, you know, that's, I guess, uh, the one, you know, the thing in this film that uh, stands out to me is just not as developed as I would have liked it to have been. I find that really interesting. That's one that didn't, uh, that's one that, that slipped by me. I, I thought that was a, well, I thought that was an interesting bit of sort of police force classism. It is. It is. And, uh, or, or the sort of a caste system that exists in this, in this kind of microculture. And uh, I'd be interested but, to, to hear just sort of how real uh, or not that is. Right. Because by the end of it, you know, there's no attitude at all as, you know, they're flying around in the helicopter over the two detectives. Exactly. So it's, you well, know, that's it's, a, that's a good point. That is that caste system is not, you know, maybe it's just a, because of their, they're sort of portraying the professionalism of the force in a very intense sort of high octane scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, uh, uh, that that also may go to your complaint that it it was a not uh, not a fully developed angle. Yeah, let me let me ask you one more question about your thoughts on the film. Yeah, um, the original ending of the film mm -hmm. happened after Mills shot Doe, and uh, and then you cut to a shot overhead of the helicopter, you know, flying down and you hear him saying, somebody call somebody, somebody call somebody. And then it would just fade to black. And that was the original ending of the film. What do you think of the ending as it is now where it fades back up? We see Mills in the back of the police cruiser getting ready to be taken in, uh, you know, uh, Somerset has the conversation with the police captain saying, I'll be around, kind of hinting that, you know, he's not quitting now. And then there's the quote he has of Hemingway. What do you think of that ending? Uh, the voiceover bit? Yeah, the vo well, the whole thing, like the, you know, Brad Pitt, you know, we see him in the car. We, you know, see Morgan Freeman saying he's, you know, essentially not quitting. He's going to be around. And yeah. then the the Hemingway quote. Wow, I feel like that's a loaded question. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I'm supposed to answer it. My initial reaction is I, I, I found it, uh, well, all right, maybe this is telling. When I remember the ending, like you tell me what you think about the ending, what sticks out to me is the gang style angle of, um, of Brad Pitt firing his gun at camera six or seven times, right? Uh -huh. um, sort of POV of John Doe. Yeah. And then there's they wander away. He wanders off from the scene from the point of view of the helicopter. Mm -hmm. Then we're at the where we've got lights going in the dark and the captain's talking to Morgan Freeman and they say, you know, get him whatever he needs, whatever he needs. I'll be around. Right. Right. And I had forgotten that the Hemingway quote was even part of it. Yeah. yeah. To me, the end of the movie ended. So I guess that's pretty telling. I, I one of the things that sticks out at me more than anything else is that it, it's an iconic it's as iconic as the silhouette of Indiana Joe's putting on the fedora mm -hmm. is uh, Morgan Freeman's character um, turning sort of screen left over his shoulder when he says I'll be around. He's got his hat on yeah. and, and it's that just sort of beautiful copper tone to the screen. And you see him uh, say that in the rain and it's just uh, well, actually, I'm not sure that it's actually raining, but it's just that that Humphrey Bogart moment, you know, yeah. uh, that 
and and I want I, I guess I deep down I wanted it to be that to be the the punctuation on the film. I'm not sure. I guess I'm not crazy about the Hemingway. And well, but even before the Hemingway, I mean, I, the filmmakers like well Fincher, um, none of them wanted to add that ending on, but it was received very poorly in test screenings. And the studio wanted a, a little aftermath scene kind of tacked on to the ending. You're Something, saying you're saying the the wandering off in the desert was received poorly in test screenings. Yeah, like we'd cut to the helicopter shot overhead as we hear, you know, um, the SWAT team saying, somebody call somebody, somebody yeah. call somebody. Fade to black, roll credits. Right. Um, the test screening did really poorly. Um, the audience was livid. And the studio felt they needed to tack on an aftermath ending. Nobody wanted to do it, but the studio required it, so they did. Um, I, I personally have never had a problem with it, like moments like you said with Freeman looking over his shoulder saying, I'll be around. I mean, it's a great moment, you know? Well, and you know what I like so much about it is that it, it, um, it shows, again, uh, it absolutely fix, it fits in the dramatic context of the film. We go through this whole the, this whole thing where we see these two partners, and uh, in the larger context of the for, the police force, we see that this these horrifying events over the course of the week have brought them together, and we watch what happens when one of their own falls apart. And the end of this film says, you know what, this was really bad, but we're not going to fall apart anymore. Yeah. You know, that's, I, it was left to me as, as really horrific as the movie is. And what you see, you know, the impact of what you see is, is so sort of stunning. Um, the end is sort of an uplifting ending. In a, in a way. Yeah, it is. Cause you know, Morgan Freeman's not going to retire. He's, you know, wants to stay there. Be yeah, strong. it's like he's still he's strong for the transition. You know, you kind of get the sense that you know he's not going anywhere because he knows the importance of the role, he knows the importance of his job, and he's going to stay until it's until things are are together. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a powerful statement, and it's all, uh, it, it's all wrapped up in those words. You know, those all be that all be around. Yeah, I think that was. I think it's great. I actually, you know, the more I talk about it, the more I like it. I still am not crazy about the quote. Uh, I, I don't mind the quote. I mean, it's it's there. I don't think it's as memorable for me as, um, you know, scenes where Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are talking in the bar yeah. about apathy or where Brad, uh, where Morgan Freeman and Gwyneth Paltrow are talking about loving their baby. You yeah. Know, and just uh, those spoiling moments, the baby. Yeah. Those moments stand out to me as the big, powerful, emotional moments. That quote at the end really, I mean, I don't think they needed it, but I do like the rest of the ending as yeah. it is. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I, uh, this movie, uh, more than I think any other of the uh, early Fincher films, man, this one holds up uh, so well for me. It was, oh, yeah. uh, this is as good as they get. You know, and we've gone through all of these now, and I keep saying every time, I'm like, you know, this one uh, might have been my favorite. This one might have been my favorite. I don't know. I'm back to seven now, maybe being being on top of all of them for me. Which I, I think I just, is so funny because we started out, both of us, when we started with Dragon Tattoo, talking about how excited we were to finally get to seven, eventually yeah. get to seven. And right. now we've done it, and I think it's it was absolutely predictive of the quality of this film. Yeah. 
It's it's just a stunning film. It's uh, so well made, and it's just uh, such a unique way to tell a story like this that is is not something you've seen before. I, I, I don't think there was anything wrong with it. No, no I really don't. Uh, I th- yeah, that's good. So what are we going to do next week? Have we figured it out? I, I, we may just have to leave, uh, leave everyone hanging. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.